the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I got a telephone call on a Saturday evening while enjoying dinner with some friends. It's about uh, probably six o'clock. And it was my bank calling my cell phone to say, now, Mr. Roberts, we just wanted to touch bases with you. We noticed a couple of out-of-the-ordinary charges on your credit card. And one was for approximately $1,000 at uh, Fry's in San Jose. And the other charge was almost $2,000, $1,700 and changes, I recall, at a Walmart store in Modesto. And what caught their attention was the fact that the two charges fell approximately 15 minutes apart. Now, I don't care if you're traveling on a Learjet. San Jose to Modesto in 15 minutes just simply isn't possible. Well, their suspicions were correct, and my worst fears had been realized. My credit card information had been compromised, and at least two people were running around the state of California with my credit card number just picking up all kinds of goodies at electronic stores. Well, the good news is we shut down the card immediately. We were able to fend off any further um, illicit charges against the card, and uh, uh, while a bit uh, chagrined, uh, it got no worse than that. For literally tens of hundreds of thousands of Americans, though, the story of identity theft doesn't end there. In fact, it begins there and gets much worse, as it did for my next guest tonight, who's taken the time to help share his horrific story with the rest of us and hoping that you can learn from some of the do's and don'ts and understand what you need to do once you've either discovered that your identity has been compromised or, better yet, steps to take to help negate or reduce the possibility of that happening. Scott Merritt has written a new book called Simply Identity Theft, Recovery is Possible. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Your story is a bit um, unusual in the sense that you first learned of this, well, much like I did. Your, your bank had contacted you by a letter indicating that probably not unlike the 70 million people who got compromised over at Target, that there had been some kind of a breach of data with relationship to um, accounts there at the bank where you did business. Though when you went and looked into all of this initially, you discovered that you weren't one of them, nothing to miss had occurred, but um, that was kind of a real false sense of security for a short moment, wasn't it? Absolutely. Tell us more what happened. Well, what happened, uh, I, a couple months down the road, I, I checked my statement, and again, I didn't see anything, so I didn't, wasn't too alarmed. But then about three months down the road, um, I started having all kinds of overdrawn accounts, checks bouncing, uh, credit cards being opened in my name. And I got hit really hard because not only did I have personal accounts at that institution, but corporate accounts. So this I went beyond really, hard really quickly. Th this went beyond simply somebody uh, copied or, or got their hands on your credit card information and started charging against you. In fact, is is it fair to describe this as saying that suddenly there were two Scott Merritts running about with the with the same or, or held in common the same um, credit identity, and unfortunately, the bad version of Scott Merritt was causing all kinds of problems for the good version. 
that 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 would be a mild way of putting it. But it's more like eight or ten Scott Merritt's running. Really. Around. What, what happens in a case like that? Uh, is this information once it has been compromised because somebody's managed to uh, to you know hack their way into a banking computer or through the computers at uh, Target or whatever and gather enough personal information to be able to go out there and and start opening up accounts in your name? Do they sell this information off? Is that how it's getting to be to, to multiple persons, multiple that individuals? Is exa- that is exactly what happens. A lot of times, it, like with the Target situation, what probably will happen with a lot of those people is is the actual fraudsters will sell those those names and phone numbers and account numbers off to other people and they'll take their cash and run and then they'll take the the people who buy that information will take it and multiply the problem and that problem can get multiplied not only across the state but across continents too can't it that is exact that is exactly at, at one point in my process i actually had someone from the uk call me oh and you're, that, that was nice. That one was obviously very easy to identify, given it was on another continent. Now, some some people listening to this would say, "Well, Scott, you, you were notified initially by your bank that there was a breach uh, of data. You watched it over a couple of months. No suspicious activity. Then all of a sudden, all kinds of suspicious activity. Why couldn't you simply go back to the bank and say, "Hey, look, uh, th- you know, the letter that you sent me is demonstrating that. Yep, yeah, now I in fact am a victim of all of this. So let's shut everything down and stop these criminals in their tracks." Well, it, and that would be a logical thing if we were dealing with a credit card. When you deal with a Visa debit card tied to your checking account, you do not have the same protections that you would have. If, if we were dealing with a national credit card. Once it's tied to your checking account, uh, some of the safeguards are not there, and that therein lies the problem. Now, the bank, the first couple times, they might eat the charges and, and, and say, thank you for you know banking with us, but if it happens repeatedly like it did with me, or in an excessive amount, eventually they're going to stick you with the bill, which is what happened to me. Well, in your case, it was not only also sticking you with the bill because of repeated activity, but as you suggested, this was activity uh, across multiple layers. I mean, did these people go around and start you know, buying cars in your name, opening up checking accounts in your name, and, and credit cards and so forth everywhere? Well, what they did is they, uh, they started using both personal and corporate cards credit cards and opening credit cards and what have you they they cleaned out four of my checking accounts uh they uh i ended up with overdrawn fees because i had actually written you know checks out for my own use so i then had to go make them right when the corporate accounts were hit i actually had to go in and make my partners whole uh so it got ugly very quickly i mean it 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 was whatever number you have in your mind triple it and then then you have a fathom because when you I'm a financial guy by trade because I'm in the securities business. And so when you manage millions, you become a target. So when we think that, well, if anything like that untoward happens, I'm simply going to call the bank. The bank will shut down my credit card. They will issue me a new one, or they will shut down my ATM card, issue me a new one, open up a new account number. Everything will be hunky-dory. That wasn't at all your experience, was it? Absolutely, it was not. In fact, what I would encourage everyone to do, if it happens... First of all, number one is do not use the Visa debit card tied to your checking account. I know they're convenient, but every time you use that, you're opening up your checking account to fraudsters. And that, what that does is it, once that's happened once or twice, it will happen over and over and over because people will sell that information. Well, what if they say, well, wait, wait a minute now, Scott, though I have a PIN number attached to that, and it's a, it's a pretty crafty number. No one knows my birth date, so how could they ever, how could they ever compromise my PIN? 
Well, because what they actually have is they have uh, predictive dialers, and they can actually figure out what your pin is. No matter how creative you think you are, I guarantee you they can, they can figure that out. That's one of the reasons why most of the European market has went to a chip system to prevent that very thing. And, of course, the irony is when you go to a store and you make a point-of-sale purchase with your, your, your debit card, you have to enter your PIN number to authorize that charge, and that's going out over that retailer's wires, you know, although it might ultimately be connected back to your bank, it's still going through some third party that potentially could capture that data, couldn't it? That, that is exactly what's happening, and that's, that is what, that is what's happening, that, that transition between the retailer and the credit card processor, uh, that, that is what's happened to companies like Target and, and Neiman Marcus and these other guys, that's exactly, that is exactly what happened. In my case, someone actually broke into a brick-and-mortar building and got my information. However, obviously in the case of Neiman Marcus and those guys, someone actually stole that information out of the air. And this is ex- extreme um, risk for anybody that has any decent level of credit, isn't it? Because if you've got a little bit of money in the bank or you've been dutiful in paying your bills on time and you've got a credit, credit score you know, in, in the upper sevens, you're, you're the ideal target, aren't you? They're, you are the person that these thieves want to be able to, to not only get their hands on any of your liquid assets that they can drain from your accounts, but then steal your identity and turn around and start opening up credit cards and charging those to the max as well. So it really comes down to the, the better the better discipline you are at your finances, the higher risk you have. Is that true? Uh, in, to some degree. However, how you can manage that situation, it comes down to one word in it. The word is identity. And I know this is going to sound peculiar, but you want to make sure that your name and your address and your phone number that you use on all financial matters matches identically the way it appears on your social security card, on your driver's license, on your bank statement, on your credit card statement. And I, and, and I mean remedial. I mean, if, for example, on your driver's license you have a middle initial, but on your, on your social security card you don't, you need to change one of them so that they match. Same thing with your bank account. If it, your name appears one way and on another credit card statement it appears another way, that's, that's an opportunity for fraud. Same thing with address. Let's say your address has the word road in it. And in one, one, in one instance, you spell the word road out, another one you put RD, period. Again, that's the breeding grounds for fraud. How do they use that? How are they able to manipulate those subtle differences? Because, I, you know, as you were talking, I, I uh, opened my wallet here, and I notice I have a few credit cards. That's just my first and last name, and I've got some credit cards uh, that has my middle and issue, and other credit cards that, uh, that uh, spells both my middle, uh, spells my middle name out entirely. Right, and so what that does is that creates aliases on your credit report. So when someone submits an application in any variation or something even similar to any one of those three variations you just named, that's an opportunity for fraud. Wow. And how you can clean that up is getting it so everything matches. You start with your state IDs, your, your driver's license, your Social Security card, um, professional licenses, etc., then you take those, photocopy them, and submit them to your creditors so, so they change your account so they appear the same. We're going to pause for a minute. We've got more great insights from Scott Merritt. Scott was a victim of identity theft back in 2005-2006 uh, and um, literally ruinous to both his personal private credit as well as his business credit. Um, and it's taken him years to unravel this mess. In fact, even as we sit out here, uh, what has it been now, uh, eight years almost, uh, he's still dealing with the aftermath of all of this. Eight 
years later. If you ever shopped at a Target store around Christmas time, you could potentially yet be a victim of all of this. Seventy million credit cards were compromised. And as Scott suggests, it's pretty easy for them to gather enough information on you to be able to recreate your identity. The thought of two Craig Roberts running around out there is just too much for the world to handle. So how do you go about uh, reducing some of that risk? We'll talk about that and then more steps on what to do once you've unwittingly become a victim of identity theft. Back to more of our conversation with Scott Merritt as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they try to address a breach of data um, or outright identity theft is to assume that your local banking institution is your friend, they're here to help, they will cut the thief off at the pass and make it all well again. But in fact, uh, there's not much motivation, shockingly, for banks to address this problem. That certainly seemed to be your experience. It it looks like they did little, if anything, but to exacerbate this horrific situation unfolding before you. Why was that? Well, and it's because uh, eventually they didn't want to be on the hook for the expenses. And it comes comes down to money. Banks make money by loaning money, not by dealing with, with fraud and things of that nature. And that's why it is critical when you are aware of that situation, you go into the bank and file an affidavit. They are not going to want to file it, but make them file it anyway. And, and and make sure you get a copy of it and then go file a police report. It's going to be important, um, Scott, to also file that police report? Uh, yes. And, and I will tell you from my own experience that filing the police report, because cops and police officers really don't like taking these reports, it took me 90 days for me to find the finally get my police report filed because they, everybody's saying, oh, we don't, we don't handle those, we don't handle those. But w- your local sheriff's office will handle them, but they're not going to want to handle it, just so you're aware. Scott Merritt is with us today. The book is Identity Theft, Recovery is Possible. We're talking about the do's and don'ts, what you need to know if it happens, and also some, uh, share some insights on how to reduce the possibility of um, being a victim of identity theft. Though I would imagine in this day and age, Scott, the idea of totally inoculating yourself from this, uh, is that kind of a, a, a pipe dream? I mean, given all that Edward Snowden unveiled, and what NSA is doing, including eavesdropping on our conversation right now, is this notion of, of pure, of 100% protection, is that just a pipe dream? Yeah, I would say it's a pipe dream. However, there are some steps you can take that uh, will minimize and greatly reduce your risk. And the number one thing I would say is, again, do not use your Visa debit card tied to your checking account. You want to use a national bank credit card. That doesn't mean that your local bank doesn't have a national bank credit card. A lot of times... The local smaller banks will partner with a national bank to offer a credit card that is national in nature. Um, And how you'll know it's a national bank credit card, you may not qualify for this limit, but you call your bank and you ask them, what is the largest limit this card is able to be in size? And if they say it's 50000 or more, that's a national card. So you don't want them, the thieves, in other words, to have access to your debit card, which, you know, a lot of us go into Starbucks, boom, we present the card. It's like a 3 or $4 charge. I don't want to have to deal with that on a credit card and then, you know, write a check to pay it at the end of the month. So a lot of folks just say, hey, I'm going to take this and treat the thing like a, a substitute for cash. That's, that's a real risk you're suggesting. And if they want to do that, there is a way you can do that. You, there are what's called reloadable Visa debit cards. You can go and put... X amount of dollars on that card and then use it, and when it's used up, just throw it away and go get you another one. There are a lot of retailers that offer them, a lot of 
your smaller community banks offer those reloadable cards. I know a, a lot of your retailers, like Walmart, for example, I know offers that offers those. How so, bad did this get for you? I mean, you, you talked about them having access to both your, your 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 personal identity as well as your business credit worthiness. I know there was an extreme impact there at both levels, but it, it, did I read right in the book uh, that this got so bad that at one point you, in fact, had been, uh, <laughs> they had put out a felony arrest warrant for you? And that actually happened twice. I was actually stopped at an international airport. I was also uh, stopped, and I got pulled over um, on an expressway and had the same thing happen. I had to go to the police station and all of that. It was easy for me to prove that it wasn't me because I am securities licensed. My prints were on file, and obviously they didn't match the, the felony record print, so therefore it was, it was very easy for me to prove. At that point, I then had to get the FBI, Secret Service, and Department of Justice involved, and my U.S. congressman, and, and they had to go in and scrub everything up and send me letters so that if it happened again, I had... I didn't have to go through the, the whole ordeal all over again. This sounds like it becomes a full-time job just trying to piece your life back together again. It, it can, but again, if you, uh, one of the things that I learned the hard way was if I would have had some of the things that I was talking about, having different variations of your name, not present, um, using the right kind of cards, not Visa debit cards, because I used to do the same thing everybody else does. Um, some of those things would have greatly missed it. And the other thing is, is there's a, an extreme process to follow, and if you make one little mistake, you have to start the process over. And there is no roadmap to help you with that process. That's really why I wrote the book, is I give everybody the roadmap, so that you know how, you, how to do it, when to do it, how to, how to prepare it, how to send it, so that you don't end up restarting the process over, over and over and over. This is really a book that, you know, in, in some cases people go out and they buy a book because they've gone through this terrible experience and now they're trying to get some, some insights from somebody who's been down the road. This is almost a book that, that ought to be bought ahead of time, isn't it? Uh, it, it is. And, and, and again, even if you haven't been an identity theft victim, if you read the book ahead of time, you can prevent it so that you're not a, a victim. And in the book, in one of the chapters, I even tell you how to structure your credit in such a fashion with little details of how your name appears, how your address appears. You can actually improve your credit score with those little techniques. Scott Merritt is with us tonight in this segment of the program. We're talking about identity theft. It impacts literally hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Most recently, we've heard news of a breach of information that took place impacting 70 million credit cards at Target. Neiman Marcus, 40 million, 110 million credit cards out there floating around that are being sold on the black market um, amongst criminals. And you know what? Some of the names on those credit cards might be yours. So what do you do about it? We're going to talk more about this. We'll also find out from Scott how helpful were the credit reporting agencies. I mean, after all, they're they're kind of in the thick of all of this. How helpful were outfits like Equifax or TransUnion in helping them to unravel this disaster and get his financial life back on track again? We'll find out that and more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The book is called Identity Theft. Its author, who's been down this road, unfortunately, himself, Scott Merritt, sharing some insights on what to do if it happens to you, and most importantly, perhaps, a preventative steps in order to um, reduce the risk of becoming a victim of identity theft. 
understand that trying to unravel this mess, God, is often like, well, it's been equated to like trying to get your name off the TSA no-fly list if, if in fact, you've been uh, in, uh, erroneously placed there. What kind of support, if all, did you receive from any of the, the big three credit reporting agencies? Were Sperry and TransUnion Equifax, were they very helpful in, in trying to kind of unravel this spaghetti tangled that your, your financial life became? Uh, in the beginning, I would say no, but what happened eventually, once I was able to get the police report filed and I got some of the dispute letters done um, by attorneys and uh, and different organizations that helped me along the way that I by trial and error, once I kind of began to build the initial file, I was then able to go to my U.S. congressman, and he was able to exert some pressure on Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian and get them to assist me, and I would point out in particular, what Equifax did is they actually assigned me a, a liaison that liaised between um, Equifax and my congressman, and they were able to get the stuff off. Though it would frequently reappear, they were able to get the bulk of it off in about six months. And, and let me stop you there, because I remember reading in the book, you you talked in one chapter about how you had to get a letter written, and, and an attorney wound up soaking you for 375 Dollars. Yeah. Uh, people are saying, wait a minute now, if I've gone through this, I've had my accounts have been breached, I am now fighting with the bank trying to get monies restored to my accounts, I have to go out and spend money on an attorney to unravel this, and worst yet, I'm you, you had to deal with your congressman to get help? Yep, yep. And, and uh, it, it, it's a process, and that, that's why, that's again, that's why I wrote the book, because there's no rhyme or reason. Everybody, everybody in the process charges a fee with the exception of the congressman <laughs> <laughs> and so so they're all in it for them they're not well, all the, in it for uh, this. If, uh, you, uh, if you if you if you succeed in the process they're happy but that's really not why they're there and at the end of the day even the congressman charges a fee i believe they collected every april 15th uh scott so it sounds to me like this is a road that if you can at all avoid going down you really want to avoid going down it spend the last few moments of our time together tonight and again i'm going to urge folks this is really a book you need to get your hands on uh so you can get better prepared because you don't want to have to go out and try to find the book after it's happened you want to know what to do if it happens on how to quickly react and most importantly some of the steps you can take to help reduce your risk going out the gate. And so this, these are kind of the homework assignment for all of us tonight is, number one, consistency in the way your name is written, the way you're literally down to the letter of the way your address is on, on bills. So if I have a credit card statement that comes in from Citibank and another one that comes in from Chase, I want to make sure that they're both addre- billing me at street, spelled S-R- it spelled out as opposed to just abbreviated. Is that correct? Yeah, whatever way you, you have it appearing in one place, that's the way it needs to appear in all places. And the most common way to, to do it is how it appears on your driver's license is how you typically have it appear in every place else. Now, if if for whatever reason it's it's spelled out on all of your documents and your driver's license is wrong, there is a one-page form that you can get a DMV and submit that. And again, of course, the state's going to charge you five bucks, but they'll, they'll fix it for you. All right. Walk me through, if there was a top ten list you had to do of some of the things that everybody listening right now ought to do to be proactive to reduce their risk, and some you've already mentioned, kind of walk us through what that list might look like. Well, again, obviously making sure your name and your address is correct. Again, making sure you use the same phone number. Uh, Secondly, is uh, make a photocopy of every single thing in your wallet, front and back, and staple it in the order that it appears, because you'll need that for the police report. That way it's already done. If you're going to go and apply for credit and you have to use your Social Security card, 
photocopy it and then put your social security card back in your strong box or your safe. Do not carry it around in your wallet. Um, th- those, are, those are some of the obvious ones. But then, again, if you're going to make purchases out in the public, do not use the Visa debit card. Use a national credit card. And when you... And, and I would recommend you put the majority of your bills on that credit card with the exception of your mortgage. And then what you do is periodically just go in and use your bill pay service at your local bank and to pay your credit card because then, then that transaction is actually insured. Um, so that way you're minimizing the way the only people who have access to your checking account is your credit card company. Yeah, you know, we've heard that mail theft, for example, here in the Bay Area in a number of communities um, in the last several months, mail theft has been on the rise, uh, both stuff that's coming in and things that are going out. You'll see, in fact, they got a neighbor, take a, um, a clothespin and will hang bills that he's paying uh, on the lip of the mailbox, expecting the mailman to come and, and pick those up and take them to the post office as he's delivering mail. Isn't that an easy way also to steal those checks and, and wash them and rewrite them? Well, not only that, but what you've basically done when, the, when, when they do that, they now have your routing number, they have your checking account number, they have your name, they have your address and how you sign your name. No. Oh. We're, we're literally giving away a lot of this, aren't we? I mean, people that use birthdays as um, uh, passwords. In fact, there's a list that comes out every once in a while of the top ten most popular passwords, password being one of them. Uh, there are many degrees in which we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up for this, aren't we? You are, and, and that's why on my website at scottamerit.com, what I actually have is I have a free quiz that you can take. And it will actually tell you the different elements of your of your identity and your credit profile that are at risk that you need to deal with, and that that will kind of tell you how much of a problem you're going to have or could have down the road. Because you're really playing Russian roulette. It's it's not a matter of if it will happen; it's a matter of when it will happen. And obviously, as you can see, it's happening more and more often. And that's why you got to make sure you're protected. Um, the other thing that I would recommend everybody if they if they they don't want to put a lot of money on their credit card, they can go get one of those reloadable credit cards, put a couple hundred bucks on it, use that to make your purchases at the coffee shop and wherever, and then when it's done, you throw it away and go get you another one. Yeah, that's going to cost you a buck or two every time you got to do that, but it's cheaper than, than dealing with what I had to deal with. What about these uh, so-called identity protection services that are out there? Are they have any value? They they play they definitely play a role and and there are different levels of those there are ones where you can simply monitor your credit report and, and again I use one of them and and the reason why I do that is because I can get notified anytime someone uh, puts a, applies for an application in my name it also lets me know if there are any variations of my name address because again you can get those with all three credit bureaus and so you can see how it appears in each location and each creditor. Is scrutinization of your monthly banking statement and, and credit card statements also important? I know that in a case once years ago somebody had lifted a, uh, a credit card number from me and uh, what, what caught my attention was there were one or two charges on my following month's credit card statement for like a dollar sixty four, and I thought now I complain about people at the grocery store who, who buy $5 worth of groceries and they pick up a, you know, a can of Coke and a package of potato chips and they whip out a credit card to pay with it as, as opposed to cash. And so when I saw this tiny little charge, I thought, well, that's odd. And, of course, by the following month, that little odd item had, had turned out to be thousands of dollars in erroneous uh, fraudulent charges. Do we need to be careful about that, too? Yes, you do. You need to, and that, again, that's why if you use a national card, when you when you become aware of those, you can call your credit card company, notify them, and they will take the charge off, 
and they will simply send you a form. You sign it, send it back, and your roll is done. That's the advantage of using a national credit card over using your Visa debit card. With the Visa debit card, you could, your risk is unlimited. You could literally be on the hook for every single dime where with the credit card, the most you can be out is $50. Well, and the other thing, too, to point out is, you know, if there's fraudulent charges against your credit card, they've gotten a hold of your credit card. They haven't gotten a hold of your money. If they manage to go in and vacuum out all the cash out of your account, yep. uh, you're now at the mercy. You know, and, and some states have laws that, that work toward protecting you. But, you know, if, if the $1,000 balance that was in there on Tuesday has been dropped to zero and you're bouncing checks now all over town, you're still at somebody's mercy to restore that cash to you. The reality is that cash is gone, and in some cases, as you suggest, the banks are resi- uh, uh, hesitant, if at all, to ever restore that money. Right, and but again, if you use the credit card, you avoid all of that hassle because, uh, for lack of a term, it's kind of almost like an insurance policy, uh, and I hate to use that term loosely, but uh, the, the reality is, is there are fraud protections that were implemented during the credit crunch back a few years ago. And they really tightened up the protections for the credit card. Unfortunately, they left the loop open for the Visa debit cards tied to the checking accounts. And that's why in my book I I spend a whole chapter on dealing with those very things. And, again, if you go to scottymerritt.com, in my book, Identities Have Do's and Don'ts, I not only give you the the process, but I actually give you the letters to use so that all you got to do is literally retype those letters with your name, your address, a copy of your driver's license, social security card, and where to send it, how to send it, and then how to track it to find out when you need to send the next letter. And, it, and in Michigan and in the other states under federal law, if they don't respond within 30 days, it has to be deleted without exception. Wow. So some really solid advice all the way around inside the pages of identity theft. And as Scott mentioned, you can get a copy of the book um, and also take that complimentary test at his website at Scott A. Merritt. Think of Merritt like uh, Lake Merritt, scottamerritt.com. And we are so appreciative of Scott sharing, Scott, from your, your pain and bitter experience um, of, of what happened as you were a victim of identity theft to help the rest of us from hopefully never going down that road. Identity theft recovery is possible. Do's and don'ts, what you need to know, what you need to do. Details on the web at scottamerritt.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Longtime listeners to this program know that every once in a while we like to focus on key events in history out of deference to the notion that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. And I think it's always valuable for young listeners to the program to get a bit of perspective about the incredible sacrifices made by parents and grandparents and perhaps great-grandparents, those of previous generations, um, once called the greatest generation, that survived through the likes of World War I, the Great Depression, and of course, World War II. It was indeed a pivotal time in world history as literally the freedom of all of Europe and most of Asia hung in the balance. It is because of the hard work, sacrifice, and even bloodshed of great heroes like those that we will meet tonight that we can say today that the flag of liberty continues to fly over America and that the peoples of Western Europe and Asia are free today because of those sacrifices made by the greatest generation. Later on, we'll have a chance to visit with Captain Jerry Yellen, author of a new book called The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission 
of World War II. We'll get to that conversation in a moment, but I thought before we do, to kind of give you some perspective on what it was like to be in those so-called flying fortresses where literally nothing more than plexiglass and thin aluminum stood between you and sure death as combat missions were flown over Europe and certainly over many parts of Asia to bring to a close World War II. We had an opportunity not long ago to travel in one of the last B-17s manufactured by Boeing. This particular plane that we'll talk about came off the line in mid-1945, August of that year, and so it was actually produced too late to actually see combat, but uh, nevertheless played an important role um, in the testing of many devices that led to the modernization of the planes that are even flown uh, today. So let's give a listen to a bit of the history of a um, pretty historic flying fortress, the B-17, the Liberty Bell. And then when we come back after a brief timeout, an opportunity to visit with the last fighter pilot of World War II. Captain Jerry Yellen joins us to discuss his new book, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. This particular airplane was built in 1945. It never went overseas. It stayed here because it was at the end of the war. The airplane was surplus to the second company that bought it after it was surplus was Pratt and Whitney and they used it as an engine test bed and they actually removed the front of the airplane and took off the uh, bombardier station put a firewall up there and uh, mounted an engine and used it to uh, test the early turbine engines and did a lot of turbine engine testing in the 60s the airplane then went to a museum in Connecticut for several years was caught up in a storm tornado broke the airplane then the uh, airplane eventually made it down to a museum in Kissimmee Florida where the Liberty Foundation picked it up Don Brooks, really the spearhead of the whole campaign, and he uh, picked up this airframe and another airframe, restored them over a period of 14 years, and put about $3.5 million in the restoration to uh, bring the Liberty Bell back to life. And he painted the airplane up in the 390th paint scheme of the airplane his father was a tail gunner on. So for Don, this was a pretty sentimental endeavor that he uh, took on and was able to bring to life the Liberty Bell for all of us to enjoy. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. Here they come, zooming to meet the thunder, and them boys give her the gun. Down we die, spouting our flame from under, off with one terrible roar. We live in fame, or go down in flame, boy, nothing can stop the army air The wings level and true. If you live to be a gray-haired wonder, keep the nose out of the blue. Flying men guarding a nation's border, we'll be there, followed by more. In echelon, we carry on. Boy, nothing will stop the army air corps. 
particular aircraft was built in Burbank, California, the Lockheed Vega plant in Burbank. It came out of the factory either the last week of February or first week of March of 1945. The aircraft went into the military inventory, was used as a training aircraft for just two or three months or so, and that was the end of its active service. It was declared surplus by the War Department uh, because the war ended in, in August of 1945. It was sold to a smeltering plant to be melted down the way they chopped up and melted down thousands of the aircraft. They melted them down and made aluminum pots and pans out of them, or in the 50s they built a lot of homes that had aluminum windows in them. A lot of those homes with those aluminum windows had the aluminum that came out of aircraft, either fighters or bombers or whatever. Pratt & Whitney was developing a new engine, which today we know of as turboprop engines, but Pratt & Whitney was developing a new engine. They needed a test bed. They purchased this aircraft from the smeltering plant and flew it for 20 years, testing primarily their T-34 and T-64 turboprop engines. They moved the cockpit back 43 inches on the aircraft, elongated the nose, and mounted this turbine engine on the nose of the aircraft. They finished with it after they had flown it for some 20 years. They took the turbine engine off of the aircraft and just put a blank nose on it and donated it to the New England Air Museum, historical society who has a, a lot of World War II airplanes in their museum at Hartford, Connecticut, at the Bradley Field, which is the main commercial airport for Hartford, Connecticut. In October of 1979, a tornado came across Bradley Field, took out a Boeing 707, and went across the New England England Air Museum static display of aircraft and destroyed, I think it was nine aircraft that were in their museum. This was one of the aircraft that was destroyed. It threw another airplane right through the fuselage and cut it in half right behind the wings. It lay there in pieces for several years and then was acquired and taken down to Kissimmee, Florida to start the restoration. Don Brooks, who had been looking for a B-17 because Don's father was tail gunner on the original Liberty Bell, Don acquired it in 1990. The restoration was complete and the aircraft flew for the first time on December the 8th, 2004. We were trying to fly the airplane on December the 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, but uh, wound up with an engine problem and it took one more day to get it ready to fly. So it flew on December the 8th of 04, the first time the aircraft had been in the air in 35 years. Total cost of uh, approximately three and a half million dollars and 14 and a half years to restore the aircraft. You were one of the flight engineers, is that right? Yep, I was a flight engineer. 228 combat mission over Germany. Germany. What period during the war was that? Well, 42 and 43. So early on then. Yeah, yeah, I was one of the first to it. What was the experience like here today, being back in this plane for the first time in 60-something years? The only time I ever got airsick for an air. I did for an air. You were the guy that was up there in that top turret yeah, with the machine gun, correct? Was it, yeah. These were waste gunners. That was a bad spot down there, Walter. You couldn't get out if you got shot up or something. Tail gunner is the only one that ever got hit. I think he got hit on about the 20th. We were in the hospital. That was the end of it. You ever almost not make it back? Well, every year could happen any time. That many airplanes and shooting at us all the time, you know. Yeah, Dover, Germany, France. Yeah, early on there, you know, they were shooting. All of them, but fighters couldn't. Our fighters couldn't protect us. Couldn't get that far in. I think we were going about 110, 15, 20 miles an hour. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. 
and motor gone, we can still carry on, coming in on a wing and a prayer. What a show, what a fight. Yes, we really hit our target for the night. How we sing as we limp through the air. Look below. Captain Jerry Yellen joins us to discuss his new book, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II, next. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.